Welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, and in today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Quentin Morris. He's a violinist, teacher, and the executive director of Seattle-based nonprofit Key to Change, inspiring underserved youth through world-class music instruction. He is also the host of a radio show and video series called Unmute the Voices. Unmute the Voices celebrates Black, Indigenous, and people of color in classical music. Find Unmute the Voices on YouTube or at Classical King FM Radio. And now we'll get into the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Quentin, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. I know you're really busy. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Um... I, there's a lot I want to ask you today, um, but one of the first things I want to start off with, I noticed with a lot of your teaching projects, whether you're teaching youth, presumably at a high school level, or teaching at the college level, that you reference not only teaching them to play the violin, but specifically uh, supporting them in their entrepreneurial endeavors and also in their creativity. I'm just curious why and and what that looks like to you because I don't hear a lot of people talking about mm. violin teachers. To, I mean, I I, <laughs> I talk about it, but I don't hear a lot of other violin <laughs> teachers talking about teaching their their students to be entrepreneurial. Mm. Well, I think that it's not so much of just teaching them how to my violin students how to be entrepreneurial, but I think it's a matter of. Um, teaching them how to give themselves permission to learn and to explore and um, to kind of listen to that internal voice that we all have. Um, That's something that I've always had with myself um, from the time I was a kid. Um, And I think we all, yeah, look at it in in a way of maybe it being entrepreneurial or, or looking at it as, as valuing oneself. And I think all those things are correct. Um, but that's something that I, I talk a lot about in my violin studio. Um, and it just falls under the umbrella of entrepreneurship and, and entrepreneurship really is about, um, solving a problem, um, engaging with people and, and, um, providing, um, services that help better people's lives. And, and so in our studio, the way that we do that is really through the violin, which is the vehicle. That's beautiful. You, you just got a, like a fourth degree, I guess. And, and from Harvard (laughs) business school. And I, I, as far as I know, the other degrees were mostly related to playing the violin and Uh or education, but I'm curious why you went to business school since you've done so many things Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur already. So I'm finishing um, a graduate diploma and I took a lot of classes at the business school and then also through the extension school, um, which are two completely different schools. And it's been a really 
fantastic experience for me. The reason why I decided to go back to school was actually about two, two and a half years ago. And 2019 was when I went back. And the reason what kind of prompted it, well, there were a couple of things that, um, that really led to my decision. And the first was I'm a professor. I teach at a university and I've been doing that for a long time. And I enjoy teaching in the academy, but of course there's a lot of things that I don't enjoy about the academy, the bureaucracy, the foolishness basically that transpires with, you know, being a professor. And I'll never forget it. I was in a faculty meeting and it was just ridiculous. There was just foolishness of of something that really made no sense. And it it should have been like we're all educated people here sitting around a table and we can't make a decision. And it had to do with something like around $2,000. Like it, it was like no money. And it like this argument ensued and it was just so stupid. <laughs> I went back to my office and I thought, you know, I am tired of being around poor decision makers, people who don't understand how to make smart decisions when it comes to business. And so that, that was kind of the first thing that prompted it. And kind of at the same time, I had started my organization, Key to Change, which provides violent and violent lessons for underserved youth in the South King County area, which is south of Seattle. And so around that same time, we were starting to get a little bit of traction. And in a nonprofit space, if you are able to basically pay all your bills and um, you have no expenses left, there's a thing called a surplus, which means that you have ended your year in the black and we ended in the black. And I thought, oh my God, we have something here because starting Key to Change, I started literally with hardly any resources, $3,000 of my own money. And now we had a surplus where we could actually do something really creative. We had savings. And I thought, okay, this area that I serve is used to people making really poor decisions on behalf of all of our families and students. And so if I want to make sure that this is an organization that is sustainable, that can really execute our mission at a high level and really serve the people of South King County. There's only so many tools that I have. At that time, I didn't really, I understood accounting, but I didn't understand accrual accounting, which is really what a nonprofit uses is accrual accounting. I didn't really understand leadership or management or I just had my experience and I felt like that was not good enough for me. So I think combined the two situations of my organization ending in the black and also being in the academy where you're around all of these people who are supposedly have these advanced degrees and are really smart and can't figure out, you know, are arguing over a couple of thousand dollars. And I should also mention that at that time, 
we were running a deficit at the university and there were major budget cuts and that sort of thing. And I think arts organizations, especially a lot of them are poorly run because they have people who don't understand the balance sheet and they don't understand a PL. So I think all of those things combined, I was like, if I want this organization to really create major value in the lives of underserved youth, I've got to go back to school. And so I applied. I started taking kind of lessons online. I started kind of doing like a la carte classes. And then I finally decided to bite the bullet and applied and I got in. There it is. That's amazing. I mean, I feel like one of the big things about this is just the idea that, I mean, so many people that teach music probably have thought about trying to provide scholarships or serve underserved students, right? And I think that just the fact of you doing that is an entrepreneurial activity and that a lot of people may not realize that. Like a lot of people may not realize that running a nonprofit or making a nonprofit effective of any kind is it's entrepreneurial. Like right. you have to you have to create resources. And so why do you think that people so many people fail at doing what you've been able to succeed at, at just as far as key to change, as far as like mm-hmm. offering educational programming mm-hmm. to underserved youth mm-hmm. in a local area? Well, I, I think that there's a number of factors to it. The first is the authenticity. Of course, I can't speak for everyone, but in my experience, I have seen over the span of my career as a performer, as an educator, entrepreneur, et cetera, um, I've seen people approach outreach from a place of having kind of a savior mentality. You know, I'm here to save these kids. And so, and it could even be something as as far as like marketing, for instance, right? So you see the little black kid holding the violin. He has terrible posture. He looks sad, you know, and then you see like the white teacher who's like happy and 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 there to kind of save that student right so i think i mean that is a recipe of disaster so there's no real authenticity um i think that's first where people approach this work because it's this work is not easy it's hard it's ugly at times it's incredibly frustrating if you don't have a love and a passion and really tough skin to be able to face a lot of adversity that will come your way, you're going to fail. So you've, you've got to have a real connection from who you are as a person and what your mission and, and what your personal values are first in order to be able to even step into that space. And I think that a lot of times you know, when we're taught how to do outreach performances or outreach concerts in the community, um, you know, through school, because that all it stems from school, right? It's like you show up, you play at the nursing home, and then you leave. We're not taught how to actually build relationships with people. We're not mm. taught how to, you know, approach teaching from a place of empathy. And I'm talking at, at a really high level kind of conservatory model. We're not taught that. We're taught you show up because you're the star. 
everyone should love you. They should idolize you and they should clap for you. And then you get your check and you leave, right? There's no real connection that is built between being an artist and, and in this case, students, right? Really building that, that cohesive connection. So I think that's kind of first of why people fail is they don't approach from a place of real authenticity and they don't approach it from a real place of care, to be honest. I think the second thing, which is maybe more to your point, which is more business, is they don't understand the business. And business is a game. And a lot of people don't understand things like, which again, kind of goes back to my first point about valuing people and and their relationships, paying people on time, right? So like, you know, and my staff will tell you, I go bat blank crazy if the check is not there and on like the first of the month, checks are done, period, right? But like, as artists, as creatives or whatever, it's like, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it, right? And that's a big no-no. And and so then when you think about other mechanics or logistics of business, like making sure that you have enough money in the bank to cover all of your expenses, making sure that you understand what your messaging is, those very intricate, important details are why people fail. And I'm a, a very detail-oriented person. And so I'm always thinking, okay, how do these things all connect back to the relationship? And it's those small little details that most people forget, but everybody appreciates. Everyone. And good, hard, smart work never, ever goes unnoticed. When you talk about details, do you mean just like providing a good service? Yeah, but the good service starts with the relationship, right? I can't tell you how many times I do a lot of observations of teachers in, in schools and in, in studios, et cetera. It could be little things like a student showing up to a class and a teacher not even saying hello or good morning. How you doing? I noticed you got a new hairstyle. Little things, those little details. Kids are like, oh, you watching me, right? In my case, I'm Black, right? So (laughs) most people, whether it's their conscious or unconscious biases, you know, I run a nonprofit. They think, okay, Black man running a nonprofit organization, Black man, you know, has a company on the side. Like, how organized is he? How, How detailed is he? I bet, you know, I bet he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? There's all these, like, things that people perceive. And so, yeah, the details all the way down to making sure that things run smoothly and that people have a good experience. It's very important to me. And I think that when you focus on those small details, honestly, what it does is it makes everything run smooth and it eliminates the stress from everyone. When you're able to focus as a leader on the details, you're eliminating the stress of everyone else. When you talk about barriers to be able to serve underserved youth, I mean, I've just had a small amount of experience with this, but what, what, what I've seen is that people, a lot of times I think, oh, we just need to get the money mm-hmm. for, some, for a kid to be able to come and take this class, to pay for the kid to take the class. But then there's like 10 other things. Mm-hmm. 
after that that are barriers. Is that kind of what you mean? Or like, can you speak to what some of these barriers are? The barriers are multi-layered. It could be a barrier of a student having a ride to the studio, right? So for instance, with Key to Change, we teach right in downtown Renton in a high school at the moment. We just got a new space um, five blocks from the high school. So we're moving August 1st. I can't believe it. But having your studio in a centralized location, that removes a barrier, right? It's on a bus line. So kids can take the bus to their lessons, making it affordable. So in our organization, kids can take lessons as low as $12.50. That removes a barrier. What we've noticed, um, and we did this in our market research study, before we even started Key to Change, we asked the community, do you want a free program? And we heard a resounding no. They didn't want a free program. Parents wanted to be able to invest in their kid's education because it's their kid, right? What we heard was lessons are too expensive for us to even think about sending our kid to it. So let's remove the barrier of expense and make it affordable for families to be able to send their kids to be in the lessons. You know, instruments. What's the number one reason why kids quit playing an instrument? They hate their sound. And we're violinists, right? So it's not even like we're piano where all the keys are at least in front of you, right? If you play the violin and you're playing on an instrument that is a piece of plastic, of course, good pedagogy helps too. But the chances of that kid, if they don't have good equipment, a good instrument of them lasting longer than six months to a year is slim. So we remove that barrier. So my team and I have sat down and written every single barrier. And then we're like, okay, check, we got it. Check, we got it. Scholarships, we give over 90% of our kids are on scholarship, whether it's merit-based or financial-based. That's a barrier, right? Because you do also have kids who do have some talent, right? Their families might not be able to afford it, or they should be rewarded because they have talent and they work hard. And if you don't give them a scholarship, guess what that does? Creates a barrier. So we also award those kids as well. My board, my staff, and I have worked really hard to identify what those barriers are. And with time, with listening, with talking to our constituents, we've been able to make a lot of inroads. I guess I'm wondering, when I hear you talk about that, it's making me think, okay, if there's a program in the suburbs, well, there's a barrier to get there if it's not on a bus line, number one. There it is. Or are you, I mean, if we could have a school bus and just drive around and pick all the kids up, hey, I would totally do that. And if there's a donor out there that wants to help us do it, please help us. You know what I'm saying? But like, if you have an unlimited amount of resources and you're interested in serving the underserved, make your list of barriers and use your resources to combat them. And also ask questions before you do it, right? Like, like you said, talk to the people in the community, talk because they'll be honest with you, you know? And I think the other thing that we do, and I haven't said this, is that we show up constantly. Um, I think that 
we meet our students where they are. So we have, we've had students with physical disabilities. I have a student who has Asperger's. I have a kid who has Parkinson's disease. And so when you're talking about our, I hate to say this, but professionals who are of our caliber, our level, right? Like I'm in the university, so there's this misconception that I'm only supposed to teach like the top kids, right? Or the top high school, middle school kids. I'll teach anybody who wants to learn. We meet our students where they are. And so a lot of times we'll have students who have had an insurmountable amount of challenges and we don't turn them away. And that again goes against the pedagogical grain of classical music in the canon with it, which is if you're of a certain stature and caliber, you only teach the best. You don't teach everyone else. And so we have a much more holistic educational approach to our students in our program. I'm glad you said that because I feel like when I was growing up, that was definitely something that I believed. I don't know if I was taught to believe it, but I believed that like, hey, if I'm an elite player, Mm -hmm. then if I'm going to teach, I'm only going to teach like advanced players. I'm not going to teach kids or I'm not going to teach beginners. I think that that's been part of maturing for me is realizing kind of what you just said, which is like teaching is actually its own art form, its own form of growth. And like, I should be, you know, I should welcome the challenge of teaching anybody at any level. And I just really kind of have to push my ego out of the way. There it is. Thank you. There it is. That's exactly right. It's ego. And you know what it really boils down to? And I'm gonna go there. White supremacy. How so? Classical music, it is, in my opinion, doused in white supremacy. I am the teacher. I'm the master. I'm here. You're the student. You're here. And what I say goes because my teacher studied with this person who studied with this white man versus this white man, this white man, right? It's, it's, past, it's recycling all of these opinions that are kind of um, that are are disguised as musical ideas, mm. in my opinion, yeah. right? And so you can't do that fingering because Galamian said not to do it, or Sevchek said not to do it, or you know what I'm saying? Like like all of these things. Like so, there's no creativity. It's all about doing what your master said to do. And that's not a form of learning. I definitely get how there's like, there's an authoritarian, there's a, what I don't know what the word is, but there's like a respect the teacher and the teacher is right. And the right. student has to do what the, what the teacher says. Like there's I, that element. Yeah. And, and also I feel like the, the white supremacist side of it that seems kind of obvious to me is this idea that European music, European educational traditions are the higher art form. Mm -hmm. I see those as being like separate things that you're talking about, but I could be wrong. But I mean, like there's, you can have a strong, you know, listen to me because I'm the teacher thing in a lot of different cultural scenarios. Sure. But, but the idea that classical music is only for the elite 
mm-hmm. and that classical music is more serious music mm-hmm. and that the great educators, they all happen to be from this European tradition. I mm-hmm. definitely feel like that's real. Absolutely. Really. I think it's all real. And, and I think the other part to it is that the student is never in a position to ask or challenge. And the teacher is not always right. And like in our studio, what we teach, and we have our demographic of students are used to teachers not showing up for them, not saying good morning, not tuning their instruments or teaching them how to tune their instruments, setting the bar really low. And so we come in and we build trust with our students and their families. We get to know them. And we really establish that relationship. And once we've established that relationship of trust, man, our kids are doing all sorts of cool, innovative things. And I think that's the beauty of learning and teaching. And and that's why I love it so much is because it's another relationship that's that's built between an adult and a child. Um, and, And when those relationships are positive and when they are both very respectful, the possibilities and the opportunities are endless. One of, one of the things that comes up for me is this, because I, I visit a lot of classrooms mm-hmm. and I feel like the way you're talking about teaching is something that I encounter from a lot of classroom teachers. Mm. But I feel like what is maybe different or what you're talking about seems more common to me is in the university scenario Mm. where it's more like elite players who have become teachers. Right. This authenticity piece though, I think is really interesting because I'm gathering or I'm guessing that what you're saying about being authentic is that, for example, if you're going to reach black kids, then they might feel safer in a black neighborhood or with a black teacher. Is that part of what you mean by authentic, for example? I think what I mean by being authentic is being real, right? And in classical music, we're taught to be perfect. We're not taught to be vulnerable as people. Everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be precise. Don't show your emotions. Crying is a sign of weakness. Right. And we're judged based off of our accomplishments rather than our service. So it's like, look at a string quartet. The string quartet, the first violinist is who everyone wants to study with. No one ever wants to study with the second violinist. Right. It's very hierarchical. It's all about status. And it's just, it's stupid because it's just music. Like, for instance, I know that you used to um, go and teach at John Little John's camp. And John and I used to play together for a few years. When we were younger, we had a string octet called the Young Eight. And we played all the serious stuff. We did Mendelssohn, Shostakovich, you name it. We did all that serious, serious, hardcore octet chamber music. But then John was like, hey, what if I wrote an anthem for us? And we did it as an encore. And it was a way for each of us. We, we had like a little theme. And then we had an opportunity for each person to do a little solo during the anthem, which was really cool. And people ate it up. 
And, you know, and black people, we always going to find the beat. We're going to start clapping. We're going to start grooving. And when we would invite people to our concerts, no matter if it was us playing Mozart or us playing John Little John's Young A Anthem, folks would be grooving. I love that kind of stuff. I, I don't mind if people clap in between movements. I don't mind if they you know, yell out or scream or shout. Like, I welcome all of it because we're people and we're all sources of energy and we all feed off of each other. And if you are having an emotional reaction to a phrase that I just played or that someone else played, you should be able to express that. Now, the classical music canon teaches us not to do that, that you have to wait until the very end. You have to suppress. I don't believe in that. I believe that as a performer, you feed off of the energy of your audience. And if your audience has given it to you, you as the performer, give it back. And it becomes, I believe that's really when art and the creativity of performance really starts to happen. And it becomes this dialogue between the two. A lot of people disagree with me on that, and that's totally fine. But in my experience, even when I played at Carnegie Hall, my solo debut there, Man, people were clapping in between at Brahms. I played Brahms too, a major sonata. And man, that second movement has that middle section, that allegro that, that moves. It's in three. And folks was grooving to it. And I ate it up. I loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I feed off of the energy. And I just feel like if we can be more human in our interactions when it comes to this music, whether it's teaching, or performing or whatever, I think more people will gravitate towards it. Yeah, I like that. I mean, yeah, this idea of the hierarchy and almost like classical music is almost like sports in that way. It's like, well, who's the yeah. you know who's the best? Who scored the most? Who can play the fastest? And it, I guess part of what I'm hearing is you're saying let's make it more collaborative. Let's allow more creative ways to be expressive within the body, even if it is the body of classical music. But what about also like other types of music? What do you think about that? I mean, all types of music, jazz, R&B, funk. Um, I, I mean, if it, if it sounds good, I like it. Well, like, okay, like American Idol or somebody like this, I don't know, America's mm -hmm. Got Talent or somebody famously, and Tuset always makes fun of this because they always set up this, uh, this kind of fake scripted thing where it's like mm -hmm. someone comes out and plays classical music and then they're like, oh, that's boring, you know, that's lame, let's spice it up, let's put a beat to it, right? And so then a lot of classical musicians, I think they feel offended by that because they're like, nobody likes classical music, this is serious music. And so they get defensive. And so then they, they go into this posture of like, no, classical music is more serious. Do they own it? Did they write it? No. Meaning, so for classical musicians who are like, oh, don't put a loop pedal with that. Like, did you write the music though? Right. Is it yours? Right. Do you own it? Right. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we try to act like we own Brahms symphonies or we try to act like, uh, like this is my Strauss sonata. Yeah, right. But right, do right. you own it? Did you write it though? Gotcha. How you know what the composer, the, as musicians, we evolve, we change, life experience happens to us, we fall in love, we get depressed, our heart's broken, we win a lotto, whatever, right? And we are influenced as artists by our life's events. And that inspires creativity. 
So if Brahms or Strauss or Mozart rose from the grave and they heard it, they might be like, oh, that's hot. How come I didn't think of that? Right. But we're so quick to say they wouldn't like that. That's wrong. This is serious music, blah, blah, blah. How you know you didn't write it? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm on the page with that. Like, I, I feel like it would be productive <laughs> for everybody if people learned more types of music, if you even want to call it that. And wrote music. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting how you're talking about ways to bring creativity into the quote-unquote classical scene or classical scenario. Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know. As I've gotten older, I think I've just abandoned a lot of what I was taught in school, which is it's this way and you can't morph from that. I just, I just don't believe that anymore. I believe that there's space for both. I think that there is space for one to be creative and, you know, if they want to like look at Beethoven's fifth, right? I mean, that theme has been used in everything and sampled everywhere, right? And everyone knows it. And it wasn't just because it was played in the concert hall. I think that Beethoven's Fifth could be in a concert hall if you want that type of experience. And if you want something that might be a little bit more alternative or a little bit different or more creative, I think that there are spaces for it too. I think it, it can belong in both places. Right on. So you've done a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. And I mean, even just talking about Key to Change, which is yeah. this nonprofit that you created to provide violin lessons and educational programming for underserved youth in Seattle. How do you get the money to teach these kids? We raise it. We go out and we we ask for money. And I'll, I'll say, and this was kind of earlier to your point about why do people fail at this? Again, because it goes to the relationships. We don't just ask for money, but we connect the mission with the people who support our organization. So... Our supporters are people who have been with us since our inception. They've been with us since the very beginning and they've watched us grow and they've watched how our students have evolved. They've gotten to know the family. They've gotten to know me. I think the key to successful fundraising, if you're in a nonprofit or even in a for-profit sector, is the relationship, is keeping people informed of your progress. I think a lot of times as artists, we fall into the realm of, I need money, thanks for the money, bye. And we never follow up with them. We don't let them know how we're doing at, or we don't show them what the end result or how our product has evolved or how it's grown over time. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. They make it transactional. Regardless of what industry you're in, it could be even tech, it could, whoever's watching this, you know, fundraising is not transactional, it's relational, period, mm. period. And that's how we've been able to grow. And we've also built trust because of that. We have stayed consistent with our mission. So we're not trying to grow into this big thing. We do violin and viola 
period. We don't do cello. We don't do bass. I think that's a danger that people go into is they're like, oh, I, I got this thing. So now let me let me add cello. Let me add tuba. Let me add clarinet. Let me let me add all these things. And, and then they've lost focus. We're very focused on we serve underserved youth in South King County and we teach violin and viola lessons. That's it. And I think when you're consistent and when you stay in touch with people, more people will gravitate towards you and they'll want to support you. What's the return on the investment for the donors? And what do you mean by, you know, relational versus transactional? So for instance, let's say, Chris, you gave us $50,000. Right. And you said, I'm going to give you $50,000 for you to provide scholarships for students. So I'm gonna take that $50,000. First, I'm gonna ask you if there is a certain type of student that you want to fund with that $50,000. You might say, you know, I wanna fund all students who live in a certain area or are, you know, boys between the ages of 11 and 15, because that's when boys are generally teased for playing the violin, right? Mm -hmm. Or I want to support girls who are indigenous because how many indigenous violinists do you know who are Mm -hmm. girls or boys, right? So I would ask you first, like, how can we help you invest your money wisely in our organization? And once you've identified that, then we meet those students. Now, a lot of times, most people will say, we trust you $50,000. Give the money to who you believe needs the money, right? So then we, we award that scholarship money. And then what we do is we create videos for our donors with student performances, with testimonials of the students, you know, thanking the donor. If the donor does not wish to be anonymous, We sometimes arrange for the donors to meet our students. Um, What we do is we basically show growth of that student or students over the period of time that they have given the money. So in other words, the return on investment is the evidence of how the money was spent and the outcome of the money that was received. Thanks very much to Electric Violin Shop for supporting the Creative Strings podcast. Electric Violin Shop is not only the best solution for all things electric strings, they are also an employee-owned business. Maybe that's why you're always going to get a human to pick up the phone and answer your questions, no matter how many questions you have when you call Electric Violin Shop during business hours. If you're in the U.S., Call Electric Violin Shop at 866-900-8400. That's a toll-free call. 866-900-8400. You can also find them at electricviolinshop.com. Creative string players and teachers depend on Yamaha because Yamaha backs up their electric and acoustic string instrument lines with the best warranties I know of. And they support music educators and associations like American String Teachers Association, events like Suzuki Institutes, school visits around the country, and they support much more in music education. If you're on Facebook, and if you're a current or future music educator, 
Join Yamaha Music Educator Community free. Thanks to everyone at Electric Violin Shop and at Yamaha for supporting Creative Strings Podcast. I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this, they're not going to necessarily start their own nonprofit, right? But they might have a private studio. They mm-hmm. might teach in a, in, a, in a high school or a middle school. Mm-hmm. They, might, uh, they might want to do some work that they consider somehow charitable, or they want to be able to do some amount of contributing, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily, they're not going to take, do everything you did, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Devote mm-hmm. their, like a major part of your life is devoted towards key to change. Yeah. And so what should they do? What should they not do? You know, cause, cause <laughs> first of all, I, I'm thinking, okay, mm-hmm. let's imagine I've got a teaching studio and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a violin player in, in the suburbs somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, oh, it would be great if I could support some people with scholarship. I've got this Zoom class I do, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't cost mm-hmm. me anything to get, you know, or we do recitals. It strikes me, first of all, I feel like mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to reach those underserved youth potentially. And it might mm-hmm. be hard to enroll them for numerous reasons. One thing they could do is they could find an organization like Key to Change, although mm-hmm. there isn't one in every city. That's part of what makes, I think, that special what you're doing. And hopefully mm-hmm. there will be more. Mm-hmm. If they want to give away a few scholarships, if they're not a full nonprofit, but they're like some a teacher has a studio or a, a classroom teacher in a high school, and they're like, I want to get more kids involved in our program mm-hmm. that aren't mm-hmm. rich white kids. What should they do? What should they not do? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a couple things that, you know, if they're teaching, if I think I understand your question, which is they want to be able to provide resources for their students, right? Is that what I understand? Yeah, like let's let's say that a teacher or a a classroom teacher or a private studio, mm-hmm. they want to reach more underserved youth. Oh, I see. Okay, then yeah, you gotta get you gotta have resources, and you've got to be in a location where they can come. And if they don't have instruments, you got to provide instruments and you've got to do the work and build trust. And if you're a teacher from the suburbs and you want to reach kids from the inner city area, you're not going to be able to do that without building a healthy relationship that takes time. Because you have to understand just showing up to a school and saying, here's my card. I play violin. I played at Carnegie Hall. I played at the White House. I've done this. I've done that. A lot of kids be like, so that's nice, right? Like, it's got to be like, hey, I can help you. Like, if you struggle with your own self-confidence, if you're shy, if you have poor grades and you want to raise your grades, if you have been getting into trouble at school and you're in fights and you're getting suspended, if you're like, you got to talk their language, right? Because those are real things that are happening to those students. If you're doing all any of these things and you know those are things you should not be doing or it's a barrier for you, like if you're shy, if you have anxiety, come study here. This is an, this is an open space. We are a community and you are welcome. And we're going to do everything we can to win your trust. Just come and observe a class. You don't even have to sign up. Just come and observe. Come take a week of classes for free. Give it away for free. Like bring them in, do what you can. Or maybe even ask them, hey, I see you're interested in learning the violin. 
what's stopping you from taking lessons? Is there something I can do to help? Is it your parents don't support? Because believe it or not, Chris, there are parents out there who believe, oh my God, my kid needs lessons. Is he not doing well in school orchestra? They look at taking lessons as like a student who's in a math class at school who needs a math tutor, right? You don't get a math tutor because you want to become this amazing, you know, mathematician. You know, you don't get an English tutor because you want to learn how to write amazing paragraphs in your five-page essay. You generally get a tutor in the academic areas because there's something lacking. Well, guess what? There are some parents out there, especially if they come from cultures or backgrounds where this isn't normal for them, they believe that, oh my God, my kid, he's in orchestra. He must not be doing good because he needs lessons and I have to pay for it. You got to have the patience to be able to explain to families, to communities who may look at that as bad and turn it into a positive. That's what we do. That feels very entrepreneurial to me as well. And I mean, just in the sense of like messaging and marketing sales, you know, and I mean, you have a, you have a background as a filmmaker. So, Mm. uh, and so I guess a lot of that is about writing and conveying a message and getting a message across, thinking about people's pain, thinking about their aspiration and being able to translate instead of just saying, Hey, your kids take violin lessons, you know, it's like, no, really like finding a way to be persuasive and to get in front of them with that mess. That feels very entrepreneurial to me. Hopefully it feels real too, though. Cause it is very real. Cause that's, I hear you on the entrepreneurial part. And I guess I have been an entrepreneur my whole life. You know, um, when I was younger, I would take sand and salts and I would, you know, make them into different colors. And then I would like sculpt them into different, um, vases and I would sell them. And I had my little price sheet. And, you know, I used to, I remember my mom bought me a brother typewriter back in the eighties. And so I used to take the little hard cardboard and I would make little business cards and sell these, these little salts. And when I got in junior high school, um, we had a school store and I ran the school store. High school was playing weddings and had a little card and all of these little things that so I've, I, I guess I've always been entrepreneurial in that sense. But when I really look back at it, I guess I've always just tried to connect the things that I was most passionate about with people and be paid for it. And maybe that, that is entrepreneurship, right? You're solving something, you're, you're providing a service. But in my case, I've always just associated it with people. And so right. that's, that's just been my journey. And so that's the difference between that and being transactional. Transactional is, hey, Chris, I need $50,000. You give me the $50,000 and I, you never hear from me again. Mm. Well, and, and part of what occurs to me about that is that a good entrepreneur is going to build a lifetime of recurring business based on relationships, based on we deliver a service, we do it well. And so then we have somebody who wants to come back again and again and tell everybody else about us. That's right. 
That's right. And and I and so I'm thinking of the suburban teacher. Sorry, just a a a fictional stereotypical yeah. <laughs> suburban teacher sure. who is like, you know, they they somehow they got established or maybe they teach in a high school in a suburb. Mm-hmm. And somehow mm-hmm. they got established and they got there and they were like, okay, I need some students and then they put up some flyers and then all of a sudden they have a studio. And it's like they went through that little bit of growing pain at one point in order to establish themselves sure. with with a with a, a way to make a living based on serving students. But then it kind of kind of becomes a set thing, right? And I'm saying, well, what if they want to grow and serve other people? What I hear you saying is that they kind of have to take some responsibility for reaching out and trying to understand the pains, the aspirations of the people that they want to serve. Mm-hmm. And it may not be that easy. I'm imagining people that are just like, hey, I got this violin studio. We've got scholarships. Why aren't people are taking our scholarships? And what I'm hearing you saying is it's not that simple. Nah. You gotta you gotta try harder. You gotta reach a little bit more. And that I would think is gonna help people grow though as well. Yeah, because what you just described is transactional, not relational. I'm providing a service. Come get this service. Come get it. I'm from the suburbs. So that means I'm good. I'm good. I'm likely a white man or a white woman. I got blonde hair, blue eyes. So you know you can trust me. Come, here's my business card. I'll see you next week. That's transactional. It's not relational. There's no relationship built on that. It's like the idea that like, hey, what I do is good. I'm good at what I do. So therefore you should come to me, right? Versus- It's my responsibility to kind of prove that I can serve you. Yeah, that or asking them, so what do you want to do? Is there a piece you've been dying to learn? Hmm. What violinist does not want to learn vibrato? (laughs) (laughs) What 11, 12-year-old kid doesn't want to learn how to shake their hand? Vibrato. Every kid wants to learn vibrato. And then... Kids want to also learn how to shift. They want to learn how to play up the fingerboard of an instrument. So why not lead with that? Why not lead with, hey, you ever been curious about learning about vibrato or about shifting? Well, come take a lesson. I can teach you how to do that. You know, I think like we were all kids at some point in our lives. If we can all kind of tap into the kid in us and teach to that kid that's still in us, that kid who went without or didn't have the resources to get X, Y, and Z or learn vibrato or shifting. If we can approach our strategy from a place of the student's perspective, and we're not going to get them all, but I think that if we approach it from that standpoint, we'll be more successful. I like that. So I've heard some people describe over the last couple of years, you know, uh, the conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion Mm -hmm. as like the quote unquote diversity bandwagon, (laughs) meaning, you know, everybody is kind of, you know, talking about it Mm -hmm. uh, or signaling that they want to be involved. So what does it look like to do it wrong? What does it look like to do it right? What are you sick and tired of? What do you want people to understand about racism in classical music? You know, I think the first thing that I want 
I just want us to do is, as a field, is acknowledge that it's racist. Just acknowledge that and understand that the structure of classical music was created for a very specific demographic. It was. And while that was, it was created for a very Eurocentric, white, male, affluent, very educated man, that we don't have to stay in that space. We can evolve. And we can evolve our thinking and we don't have to abandon our musical traditions. And I think a lot of people think that by embracing diversity, equity, inclusion, that we're abandoning the whole thing. And I don't feel like we should because I respect the art form, but I don't respect the racism, the micro and macro aggressions that Black people, Asian people, brown people, you know, Latinx community, Indigenous people have suffered for hundreds of years. I just, I can't get with that. And so what do I think that people need to do? I think they need to first embrace it. And then I think the second thing is, or not embrace it, but at least acknowledge it. It needs to be spoken. And, and, and then from there, I think there really needs to be, it almost needs to be like brushing your teeth. You do it every day, right? It becomes this habit. I think in order for us to, as a field, abandon our biases, our blame biases towards a certain demographic of people within classical music, we have to work at it daily. And so there has to be exercises, there has to be conversations that are difficult, that are confusing, that are uncomfortable, that bring you in a sense kind of out of your character. I think that has to be exercised regularly in order for us to make progress and change. It also builds trust. If you're not willing to have those uncomfortable conversations, how are you ever going to be trusted when you say, we're, we're going to do DEI work here in our company or in our organization or our school, but we're not going to have these conversations. How are you going to build trust? Mm-hmm. Right? I think that trust a lot of times is built. Um, it's a, obviously a, a, a strong form of respect, but when you're dealing with those sorts of, of things, when people can be vulnerable and, and people can really be honest and truthful and both agree to work towards a common solution that is inclusive of everyone, that's when you see change, you know? And, and I'm speaking as someone who has played in chair music societies and been on artist rosters of, of, you know, concert halls, et cetera, where I have experienced racism firsthand. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a terrible feeling. And I've experienced it in our field of classical music and in the academy as a university professor and as an entrepreneur, right? So it's, it's kind of hit me on all sides. But I think that the way to combat it is to talk about it and 
get comfortable with being uncomfortable and all working together daily. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. They could listen to the radio show called Unmute the Voices. Hey, yeah. They could listen to that. Classical musicians definitely should listen to it because that is a show where we um, highlight the music of people of color who are both performers and composers. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I mean, it it was a plug, but it's it's I'm being real about it because you said like people can read books, they can watch movies, they can try. You know, if you're not able to like yeah. you know like like to 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 go into a different part of town or to reach out to somebody and have a conversation, which is what I really feel like more people need to do is yeah. you know try to you know really reach out and meet people and have conversations. But if you're not able to do that, at least subscribe to unmute the voices, mm. read literature. Like I mean, right. Absolutely. I mean, Unmute the Voices is a show that tells also the stories of people of color, both composers and artists who are doing extraordinary things in the classical music canon. I think it's really important for all of us to know about who they are, the lives that they have lived, um, the contributions that they have made to classical music and also how they have influenced and inspired so many other people that we just don't know anything about. I think all of those things combined are what has made Unmute the Voices a really fantastic platform. Um, there's obviously the radio show, but there's also the video series where I have an opportunity to interview people of color and other white allies in classical music on an array of different topics that I think has been really valuable. And it, it's been great for me to be able to share the stories of, of so many amazing people in our field and also um, to bring awareness of the fantastic music that has graced our airwaves. I saw a interview or just a part of an interview that you did with someone who's involved with that radio station. I think it might be called King Classic. King FM, mm -hmm. Classical King is the radio station that hosts the show. And I thought it was powerful because the woman on, on that interview with you, she, she came right out of the gate and said, you know, I've, I've acknowledged my own racism or I'm acknowledging my own racism and acknowledging that classical music is racist. And, you know, I'm assuming there was some relationship with this radio station giving this show, giving a spot to not only this topic, but to you to be the messenger or the host of this show, <laughs> which, which sounds, which seems to me like something that more people could do. I, you know, I hope that other classical music radio stations embrace this model of creating shows where people of color are exclusively featured, whether they're performers or composers. The woman that you're speaking of is Brenda Barnes, who's the CEO of Classical King. And um, she's actually a board member as well on Key to Change and, and become a good friend of mine. I admire her bravery and, and respect her immensely for her leadership. I think when you see other 
CEOs or executive leaders who are denouncing racism, who are speaking very candidly and authentically about their own personal experiences, um, it serves almost as a teaching tool for other people who might be kind of struggling with how they can combat their own internal racism that they may have. That conversation that we had, I gained so much more respect for her because as she indicated in that interview, she had nothing to lose but everything to gain. And mm. if every white, you know, musician or leader that I knew could watch that video, I would show them that because you're not losing anything, but you're gaining so much. But it takes courage, obviously. And it takes a willingness to learn, to listen, to be wrong at times, to recover, and then to just do right. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you so much, Holy, yeah. for just giving your time and your insight and oh. educating me and, ev and everybody here on this podcast today. It's uh, it's really humbling and and just beautiful to to listen and, and to hear your take on all this stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I respect you immensely um, as an educator, as a, as a fiddle player, and followed your career for a long time. I was really stoked and honored and humbled, really, to have been asked to be on here. It's, it's been an, uh, just an amazing pleasure. And of course, I, I you know, follow your brother, Lewis, as well. And he's also a huge inspiration to me. Hi, Lewis, if you're watching. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that both both of you guys, the How Boys, you guys are just, you guys are awesome. And, and I, <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate the service that you both give um, in, in your respective fields. Thank you. Is there anything you would like for people to know before I let you go, Quentin? Visit our website. Visit, you know, keytochangestudio.org, look us up. Also, listen to our show, Unmute the Voices. Um, both are, are very parallel. They both serve to underserved. They're both in the realm of classical music, and they both empower people of color. And so both platforms, I think, are great ways to engage people um, who are interested in any of those things. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Man, it was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Quentin Morris. To learn more about Key to Change, go to keytochangestudio.org. And to listen to or watch Unmute the Voices, Quentin's radio show, and video series, look up Unmute the Voices on YouTube. You can also uh, add Quentin Morris in your search and or go to king.org. That's the um, King Classical FM radio station. You can also find Quentin on Instagram with the handle QI Morris. You can find more links to all of this and more at the show notes at christianhouse.com 
or at creativestrings.org. And I want to thank our sponsors again, Yamaha, creative string players depend on Yamaha. I also want to thank Electric Violin Shop. If you ever have any questions about all things electric strings, call Electric Violin Shop. Their phone number is at their website, electricviolinshop.com. I should also mention that Yamaha provides a lot of great free resources for music educators. To access those, you can search for Yamaha Educator Suite, or you can join their free Facebook group, Yamaha Music Educators Community. Creative Strings is a nonprofit, and we have a mission to positively impact music education, especially in the string playing community. You can visit us at creativestrings.org, or if you go to christianhouse.com and look for free resources on the top navigation bar, you can sign up for the newsletter to receive free transcriptions, free sheet music, and get a lot of great tips that I send out weekly. We also offer outreach in schools. We have online guided practice sessions that you can join me uh, live on Zoom for. And or if you look up Christian House on YouTube, you can practice along to hundreds of free play-long videos. That's just the tip of the iceberg. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to the Creative Strings podcast, review, share, and don't hesitate to reach out to me anytime with any questions or suggestions at chris at christianhounds.com. Thanks so much. See you next time.